Mark chapter four, beginning in verse 21, it says, and he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you and to you who hear more will be given for whoever has to him more will be given. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Remember that Jesus finds himself on the shores of the Galilee in Capernaum. A crowd has gathered on the northern part of the lake. He finds himself in a boat and he's been pushed out just a ways as he begins and continues teaching. In chapter four, Jesus teaches in parables and emphasizes four responsibilities of believers in Jesus and citizens of the kingdom. He talks about sowing in verses 1 through 20 and also in verses 30 through 34. He speaks of shining in verses 25 through 20, 21 through 25, reaping in verses 26 through 29. And then he's going to go to the theme of trusting in verses 35 through 41. Part of what we begin to understand when we heard the parable of the sower and the soil and the seed, that the condition of one's heart determines our receptivity to truth. And now we learn that those who receive truth act upon it will be will receive more. Those who reject truth will lose what little that they have. And the reality is that we must respond to the truth. The Bible says that we who are Christians, we who know and love the Lord Jesus, those of us who have embraced him as Lord and Savior, we're made new by God in Christ and we're made new in order to shine in dark places. If we are unable to shine, we are hard pressed to give justification to our existence. In the parable of the sower, we were taught that the fruitful heart brings forth more fruit. And now Jesus teaches that the believer shares the truth in verses 21 and 22 and 23 and then marks that truth. In verses 24 and 25. And so we begin with what I call the law of radiance. In verse 21, Jesus says, also, he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? Every Jewish home would find three utensils in every Jewish home. There would be a lamp. There would be a bushel or a basket which mom and dad would use to store the grain and would bring out to make bread or to provide food. Every Jewish home would have had a rolled blanket that would be used at dinner time as the dinner table and it would be used as bedtime as a bed. 
And so again, in verse 21, when it says is a lamp brought out to be put under the basket or under the bed, the word translated lamp is like Nos. It would have meant an oil burning lamp. The lamps were made of fired clay. As a matter of fact, the lamps were small enough that you could hide them in the palm of your hand. It just so happens that I have a first century lamp from the time of Jesus here in my hand. And as you can see, it's small enough to fit in the palm of my hand. I can put it in my pocket and take it out. It was made of fired clay and it would have been made to be filled with pressed olive oil. They would have filled the fountain here and they would have taken a, a piece of cloth and they would have rolled it in the spout and they would have lit it on fire in order to provide light. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, in order to give light, the lamp had to use itself up and the oil had to be replenished. If the lamp was not lit or if it was covered up, it would do no good. The apostles, and I would go so far as to say the disciples, were like that lamp. They were called to shed God's light and reveal God's truth. But they could not give out without first taking in. The more we hear the word of God, the better we're able to share it with others. The moment we think we know it all, what we think we know can be taken from us, unquote. And so the word translated basket is modion or literally a peck measure. In other words, you would have grain and you would measure it out. Some of you at home have a quart basket or you have a gallon basket. They come in different sizes. This peck measure was one fourth of a bushel. And so many of you growing up, some of you who grew up in a Christian household, you'll remember singing a little song when you were a kid. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And remember, there's a stanza that goes, hide it under a bushel. Yeah, some of you remember. Hide it under a bushel. Do you remember when you're a kid going, hide it under a bushel? No. And you're going, what is a bushel? Well, the bushel is that basket. As a matter of fact, the basket or the bushel could also be translated meal tub or grain bowl. The bowl is to be used for the grain, not for the light. The little lamp represents the truths which Jesus would impart to his disciples. And the whole point is that truth belongs in the place where it will do the most good. So the oil lamp placed under the bushel basket or the grain basket would extinguish the light. The oil placed under a bed at best does no good and at worst will set the bed on fire. Now, I grew up in a world where I felt it was my scientific duty to make deep inquiries into truth. And in the second grade, I was given a magnifying glass. And with this magnifying glass, I felt it my responsibility to understand the relationship between the sun, the light that was given, that magnifying glass, its ability to focus light and create combustion. It was fascinating. And so I went to the chicken coop 
where there was plenty of straw. And I focused the light and the chicken coop burst into flames and the fire department came and put out the chicken coop. See, you're laughing, but I suspect some of you had the same fascination with fire. And maybe you, too, in careless inquiries, set things on fire that you weren't supposed to set things on fire. The whole point, the purpose of the lamp isn't to catch the house on fire. The purpose of God's love and God's truth and God's gospel isn't to destroy families or homes or communities. We're given God's light. We're given Jesus. We're given the truth so that that truth can be shared. And the Lord wants us to bring that truth to others, that we embrace the gospel. We're not to hide the truth or cover the truth or misuse the truth or abuse the truth. The truths weren't to be hidden under a bushel or a bed. They were to be left open for everyone to see. And that becomes part of the point. Truth left out in the open is difficult to ignore. And so the source of light is set in the most conspicuous place. We share the light. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, To the weak I become weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by all possible means I might save some. He opens up his life and he opens up his heart in order to be a light and to shine in whatever circumstances he finds himself in. Now, remember, Jesus spoke in parables. And remember what we've already learned, that a parable is an earthly story that reveals something about heavenly truth or conceals Something about heavenly truth and the point of the parable in part is to remind the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, that these hidden truths were to be given full explanation to willing hearts wherever they might be found. Hence, verse 22, read it for yourself. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. Now, the word hidden is a very familiar Greek word. It's been borrowed by many languages, including our own. The word is kryptos, which has come to mean in our language something hidden or Something dark or something unknown. As a matter of fact, the verb crypto means to hide or to conceal. And so we use that expression like cryptozoology is the study of unknown species. When you are communicating over the Internet, often people will encrypt the message. You encrypt the message so that your enemies will not know what is being said and so that your friends will have access when, when, before I was born, one of my grandparents was in Sicily before the Americans invaded that island. My other grandfather happened to be on the Pacific Island fighting against the Japanese. But they would encrypt messages. As a matter of fact, my grandmother, who was in Mississippi at the time, was like one of those Rosie the Riveters. She would work on the ships in the, in the Mississippi um, Delta in, that, in, in the bay there. And they were, there was a saying that would go around. Loose 
lips sink ships. There was a time when something needed to be kept quiet, secret, hidden from the enemy, but revealed to the people who needed to know. And Jesus is once again speaking of the gospel. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed or literally in the language should not come to light. The Greek word is phanero in the passive. It means for something that was dark all of a sudden to become light. The picture is you're taking a flashlight or you're taking a lamp of some sort. You're in a darkened room. And the moment that you go into that darkened room, those things that are around you become visible. They're brought out into the open. Jesus is in effect saying that the things that are hidden or kept secret, they are kept that way in the proper place and in the proper time so that they can be brought out into the open. Truth may be concealed for a moment, even if the believer keeps his or her friendship and fellowship and relationship with Jesus concealed. You might be a new believer. You might be a fearful believer. It might be that you're reluctant that you want your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends, your workmates, your classmates to know about your relationship with Jesus. But if the believer refuses to shine. If the believer neglects the gospel, their refusal to shine doesn't make Jesus any less Lord or the gospel any less real. There might be reasons that you don't want to share your deeply held convictions. Sweet gives this explanation of the passage. He says, quote, if the gospel was for the moment treated as a secret, it was so only because this temporary secrecy was essential to its successful proclamation after the ascension, unquote. Some people wonder, why didn't Jesus just plainly say, look, I've come down from heaven. You are sinners in need of a savior. Even though you don't understand it, I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die for your sin. I'm going to rise from the dead for your justification. Most people would not have understood it. And most people actually didn't understand it until after the events took place. The passage implies a few things. It may mean that light and truth cannot be hidden or extinguished or used for the wrong purposes forever. Both light and truth will penetrate the darkness and pierce the lies and will be made known. Nor has any secret thing taken place that will remain secret, but it will be dragged out into the hot spotlight of God's eternal purposes. When it comes to the gospel, that's true. But it also is true in your life that things that you think are private will someday become public. Jesus is in effect saying the bushels in every home will be lifted to see what's under that basket and the beds will be consumed. Now, some Bible teachers have seen in the basket or the bushel a reference to business or commerce or economy because the bread bowl was something that every family would have. In the first century, they didn't have refrigerators. They would keep their food in a bread bowl. A bowl or a cereal, cereal bowl becomes a, a type, a picture of the source of food. 
and therefore everything that goes with getting food, sowing it, reaping it, cultivating it, storing it, using it, feeding it. Some have seen in the bed a picture of comfort, ease, even laziness. And the bed and the basket may be ordinary images in a rather straightforward parable, or it may represent the enemies to evangelism. And by the way, there are enemies to evangelism. Ron Humphrey, in his book entitled Hearts on Fire, noted a most sobering statistic. He says, and I quote, the average member of the average church of Jesus has heard 4,000 sermons, has sung 20,000 songs, has participated in 8,000 prayer meetings, and has converted zero sinners. How is that possible? How can you go to church week after week and month after month and year after year? How can you hear so many sermons and sing so many songs and pray so many prayers, but your heart is left empty and dark and distant from Jesus and from shining? How can so many Christians be so unmoved by what they hear and what they sing? My friend Franklin Graham's father, Billy Graham, said, We are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is needing. We are the sermons the world is heeding. For some, the only Bible that they'll read, the only belief that they'll embrace, the only sermon that they'll get to hear is your life at home, your life at school. So what are the enemies of evangelism? The list is long. We could put apathy on the list. We could put indifference on the list. We could put unbelief on the list. We could put depression on the list. We could put disappointment on the list. And we could put the weed patch and the parable of the sower, the seed, the soil. We could put all of those things on the list. William Booth heard Rudyard Kipling say how much he disliked and despised those who played the tambourine. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And, and in, in the 1880s and 1890s, they would have a tuba and a trombone and a, and a tambourine and they would sing worship songs. And William Booth said, young man. If I thought I could win one more soul for Christ by standing on my head and beating a tambourine with my feet, I'd learn how to do it. My friend Bill Fay was once confronted after a message. He was giving a talk on personal evangelism, which is very good, by the way. And this man came up to him and he said, I don't like your method of evangelism. And Bill Fay said, What's your method of evangelism? He said, I don't have one. He goes, I like my way better than your way. His way basically consists of four questions. In order to start a conversation with people, he'll he'll basically say something like, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Most people want to talk about themselves and what they believe. And so Bill Fay says, let them talk, let them say whatever they want to say, whether it's agnosticism, atheism, Buddhism, whether it's Christian science or go through the alphabet of whatever it is that they want to believe. He just says, listen to them patiently, listen to them carefully, and then ask them a second question. 
Tell me to you, who is Jesus? Tell me what you believe about Jesus. And then let him talk. And then the third question he asks, tell me what you believe about heaven and hell. And he lets them talk. And this final question can either close the door to the conversation or open it. The fourth question that he asks is this. If what you believe wasn't true, would you want to know? Really, there's only two answers to that question. Yes or no. And if the answer is no, I don't want to know. I don't want to be bothered by the facts. I don't want to be encouraged or or discouraged by the facts. Guess what? It's pretty much the end of the conversation. William Branwell said, how is it that the soul being of such value and God so great and eternity so near yet were so little moved? I read in a biography about D.L. Moody, how he was walking down a certain street in Chicago. He made it his point to share Christ every single day, no matter what. He came up to a complete stranger and he said to the stranger, sir, are you a Christian? And the man replied, you mind your own business. And Moody looked at him and smiled and gently said, this is my business. And the man looked at him and he said, you must be D.L. Moody. In D.L. Moody's day, it would have been very much like if you are riding down a train or you're on a bus or you're somewhere and you hear a familiar voice say, I'm going to ask hundreds of you to get up out of your seat. I'm Billy Graham, the world's most famous evangelist. You know, Billy Graham said to you, let me ask you something. Are you a Christian? Who would say it's none of your business? He goes, this is my business for 70 years. I've made it my business to proclaim the gospel. Jesus told his disciples, go into the world. And Billy Graham believed him. And Franklin Graham believed him. And D.L. Moody believed him. And William Booth believed him. So why do we allow business or self-indulgence to take priority over the proclamation of the gospel? Why do we allow personal problems to get into the way of the testimony of the Savior? I think the reason is because we sometimes think that our personal problems will lead people to believe that the gospel isn't true. Look carefully at what Jesus says in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I want you to picture Jesus on that boat. He's just a few feet from the shore and the people have gathered and they're listening to him speak. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear and make no mistake about it. Each and every person in the audience may have had some hearing difficulty, but most of them had two ears and they could hear. What an interesting thing to say. If anyone has ears, why everyone has ears. But the expression is a warning. We're to use our ears for their well-based purpose. When I was in high school, my English teacher would say, Mr. Dracy, you're a Christian, right? Yes. You believe that God made you? Yes. You believe that God designed everything on your body? Correct. You believe he gave you two ears and one mouth? Exactly. My point too, Mr. Teresi. Take the hint. 
There's three words that I listen carefully. When my wife uses these words, it means I'm in trouble. The three words go like this. You're not listening. By the way, gentlemen, when your wives say you're not listening, what's the right response? No, it's got to be more than what? I'm going to help you out here. It's got to be. You're exactly right. I wasn't listening carefully. I was listening carelessly. She may or may not help you out. By the way, Warren Wiersbe writes, the word here is used 13 times in this chapter. It refers to hearing or receiving God's truth into the inner person just the way the soil receives the seed. Remember, I've already told you that the way to a person's heart isn't through their stomach, it's through their ears. And so Jesus reminds you, since this is the journey that truth takes in order to get to your soul, it behooves us to listen. So we have to be careful What we hear, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 18, and what we hear in verse 24, for this determines what we have to share with others. We do not receive the word so that we can enjoy it for ourselves alone. We receive that we might share just as the lamp is given in order to provide light for the entire house. Jesus is basically saying we are responsible For what we hear, and we are responsible for how we hear. Every time we hear the truth of God's word or learn principles of truth from God's word, we're responsible to obey it and share it. The statement really bears repeating. Your commitment Your energy, your effort, your willingness to embrace the truth of God's word and then live out that truth will determine whether or not God is willing to entrust you with more truth. Jesus teaches that the reception of divine truth puts the listener under obligation to do something about it. This is why... Perhaps nothing is more frustrating than going to church week after week, month after month, year after year. Because there's something inside of you that knows that what I'm saying is true. That the moment that you sit down, the moment that you open up your Bible, the moment you hear the word of God and the words of Jesus, you become obligated to it and for it. William MacDonald writes, quote, if I hear some commands from the word of God, but fail to obey it, I will not be able to pass it on to others. What gives power and scope to teaching is when people see the truth in the preacher's life, unquote. And he says this because he's a preacher. And I'm repeating it. Not for your benefit, but for mine. Because no one is more aware than me. Of the holy obligations that I have, not only of teaching the Bible, but living it in a very real way. 
And the same is true for you, though. The point becomes, is Jesus who he says he is? Does he provide peace and hope and joy and love and friendship and reconciliation? And you are hard pressed to impress that upon your family, your friends, if that isn't true in your life. And so we go from the law of radiance to the law of recompense. Look at verse 24. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. The verse begins with a precept. And it ends with a proverb. The precept. Whenever you see the words, take heed in the New Testament. And Jesus is speaking those words. It, is, it means, I want to warn you. It's one thing for me to warn you, but it's another thing for Jesus. Remember, he's standing on the boat and imagine he screams, I need to warn you. At that point, remember, you're going to listen carefully or you're going to listen carelessly. The precept warning. Be careful how you hear. The next proverb, warning. The proportion you give to hearing will result in what you get from that hearing. Do you understand what's happening in the text? Jesus is give a, giving us instructions on how to listen. He gives us a warning. Be careful what you hear. Be careful how you hear. We're to listen with discrimination and discernment. We're to shun false doctrine. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes and he goes, test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. In other words, John basically makes the statement, you need to be careful who you're listening to and what you're listening to and how you're listening to it. We are to hear in an attentive manner, it says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. We are to hear for ourselves with a view towards personal application. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 9, the story of Samuel, the young prophet who's entrusted into the hands of Eli. And as a young man, as he is taken under the wing of Eli, he's lying in his bed and he hears a voice. Samuel. And Samuel gets up out of his bed and he goes and he visits the high priest. Yes, sir, you called for me. I didn't call for you. Go back to sleep. He lies in his bed again. Samuel. He gets up again. Yes, sir, you called me. I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Look at the time. He hears a voice again. Shemuel, he goes back to the priest and the priest says, it's the Lord. The Lord is trying to speak to you when the Lord calls out for you and he calls your name this time. Be quiet. Listen carefully and repeat these words. I'm your servant. And your servant is listening to what you have to say. That becomes part of the point for you. The message that I give or the message that I speak isn't so that you can elbow your husband in the ribs or to push your wife or to give the tape to your children. Although I'm glad you give it to your children. 
But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you have no obligation to listen for your husband or listen for your wife or listen for your children or listen for your neighbor. You have every obligation to listen for yourself. That's the law of recompense. We're to hear in such a way that we remember what we hear so the truth will become a part of our life. We're to to hear in such a way that we're willing to hear not simply what we want to hear, but the whole counsel of God, rather than simply those scriptures that provide relief or comfort. Wow, that wasn't very comforting. That didn't provide me much relief. Hey, there's lots of scriptures that deal with comfort and relief, and I'm more than happy to share them with you. Art and Gingrich put it this way. The measure you give will be the measure you get. That's the law of recompense. You only get what you give. Sweet again offers this application quote. Here the sense is your attention to the teaching will be the measure of the profit that you'll receive from it. Unquote. Whatever we measure out, whatever we give out, it will come back to us with compound interest. And look what Jesus says in the text. And to you who hear. More will be given. What is it that you hear? There's hope. There's joy, there's peace, there's love, there's forgiveness. When you hear about the joy, there's more joy. When you hear about the forgiveness, there's more forgiveness. When you hear about the reconciliation, there's more reconciliation. When you hear the gospel that he's willing to forgive your sin so that you can have a right relationship with him, guess what? The darkness begins to lift from the very surface of your soul. The more you hear, the more you'll be given. But let's do a little test. Do you find the Bible boring? Do you find the word of God uninteresting? Do you find fault with almost everything you listen to? Will you learn from the faithful Bible teacher? Do you hunger for righteousness? Does faith find assistance? Here's the idea. Those who come with hearts filled with joy get more joy. Those who come with a heart of expectation, their hearts are satisfied. But I guarantee you something. You will never find hope. You will never find blessing. You will never find forgiveness. You will never find joy. If you continue to listen to lies. Lies are not the source of joy or forgiveness or blessing or hope. And that's the flip side. Look at verse 25. For whoever has to him more will be given. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Listen carefully. The precept in verse 24. The proverb at the end of verse 24. Then it's followed by a promise in verse 25. For whoever has, to him more will be given. You will be given a greater desire to hear. You will be given a greater understanding of what you hear. You will be given more certainty concerning what you hear. Your personal possessions will increase in direct proportion to what you hear. And I, by personal possession, I'm speaking of faith and truth. I'm not talking about houses and lands. 
more delight in the glorious gospel that you hear, more confidence in the person and work of Jesus when you hear, more practical instruction when you hear. D.L. Moody put it this way, God giveth to those who value what they have. Do you value what you have? Do you value that you have a Bible? Do you value that it's filled with promises? Do you value your husband and your wife and your children and your family? Fresh truth brings more truth when we allow that truth to become real in our lives. And again, the flip side, failure to respond to the truth results not only in a forfeiture of future truth, but the loss of previous truth. Jesus seems to be saying, if we fail to listen, if we listen carelessly rather than carefully, if we fail to share the light, we run the risk of losing it. Just like the candle. You place the cup on the top of the candle, starved with oxygen, it loses its flame. And so the Christian, starved of truth, can't shine. If we refuse to continue in his word, we cannot be his disciples, it says in John 8, 31. If we're not disciples of the truth, if we're not disciples of deed, if we hate the truth rather than love the truth, no wonder Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But if you reject the truth and abuse the truth and misuse the truth that God has already given to you. He's free to take away what you already have. Does God expect us to seek the truth and know the truth? The Lord doesn't think laziness or selfishness or self-indulgence or uselessness or worldliness or ignorance constitutes a good reason to listen carelessly. So what does God expect from us? We're given several instructions. Remember, in the opening book of Genesis, the Bible says Adam was told to look around and subdue the world. In John's gospel, we're told to sit and study the truth in John 17, 17. Paul told Timothy, get up, go listen to the person who knows the truth and teaches the truth. In John's gospel, in Paul's writing, we're told to learn about Jesus, to learn the truth. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. Does it shock you or surprise you to learn that you will become like the thing that you think about the most? We're to let our lives shine. We're to love the truth and not resist it. We're to listen to wisdom. By the way, we're to listen well. We're to listen with wisdom. We're to hear well. And that seems to apply to God's teaching and Christ's instructions. Hear often. Hey, as good a job as I do, Sunday's not going to cut it for you. If the only time you hear about God and His love is on Sunday morning, guess what? You need to get up on Monday and open up your Bible and let it speak to you. 
Let the word of God and the instructions of Jesus speak to you. The newsboys say, shine. Make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. Shine. Let it shine before all men. Let them see good works and then let them glorify the Lord. 200 years earlier, Charles Wesley did his own version. A charge to keep, I have. A God to glorify. A never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. I have a job to do. And that's to remind you. And encourage you. And prepare you. That eternity will be here much sooner than you ever imagined. David Watson made this observation. He said, quote, If you are an outstandingly gifted evangelist with an international reputation, and if under God you win 1,000 people to Jesus every night of every year, how long would it take to win the whole world for Jesus? The answer, ignoring the population explosion, 10,000 years. But if you're a true disciple of Jesus... And if you're able under God, by God's grace and his mercy to present the gospel, win one person to Jesus each year and then teach them to train one other person to win that person to Jesus each year. How long do you think it would take to win the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Thirty two years. A single generation. And one single generation, a whole planet shining. Shine. Make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking board. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person who is here. Lord, I pray that we would learn perhaps one of the most important lessons we could ever learn. What it means to listen carefully instead of carelessly. To listen to truth so that we would love it. Embrace it, honor it, believe it, and live it. And Heavenly Father, I pray for Christians everywhere that they would hear this message and that they would allow Jesus to let their light shine. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's been on the outside looking bored. Lord, I pray that they would hear the message of hope. That when they hear the words, are you a sinner in need of a savior, that they would understand that their life is lived in detachment. There's a great bridge between them and God. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would remind them that Jesus is that bridge, that he died on that hard, hard cross. That he died the death that we deserve for our sin. 
And that he rose from the dead and because he's alive, he can change us from the inside out. Lord, we know that we were meant to know you and to love you and to be with you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow one little light to shine. In Jesus' name, amen.